electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange, everybody. And on this Monday afternoon, stocks are in rally mode right now on optimism about reopening the economy. Right now, the Dow's up 291 points, about 1.3% gains across the board. And with a week left, the S&P is now having its best month since 1991. The S&P is up about 39 points to 2875 today. Let's check on oil, though. Once again, the focus as the June, July and August contracts are all sinking. You can see WTI for June. That's the top of your screen there. It's down 26%, about $4.50 to under $13 a barrel today. Even going out as far as August, that one's sinking to about 21 Also on the radar today, the second round of the PPP program kicking off and suffering from system crashes. New York Governor Cuomo saying that in some regions you could make the case for unpausing the economy. And as other states embark on the reopening process, New Jersey has announced its stay-at-home order will remain in effect until further notice. But first, we begin with today's market. Before diving into all that, Dom Chu is here with some numbers for us. Dom? All right. So, Kelly, like you said, the gains right now are broad-based. Every sector in the S&P 500 is in positive territory, and it's a mix of who's leading and lagging, if you want to call it lagging at this point. Take a look at the wall, because it's financials, very cyclical, economically sensitive, those leading the way higher. Real estate seen as more defensive, but perhaps a recovery play on the U.S. economy. Industrials rounding out the top three. Meanwhile, the bottom three, you can see, communication services, technology, and consumer staples, so a mix of economic sensitivity and defensiveness in the overall heat map. Now, take a look at some of the parts of the market that are really keying on some investors' minds right now. First of all, the bank stocks, and it's broad-based. Citigroup on the big bank side, Fifth Third on the regional bank side, Capital One on the credit card side of things, all catching somewhat of a bid because of that optimism about perhaps reopening the U.S. economy. Take a look at some of the other parts that we're focused on as well. Check out what's happening with retail stocks. PVH Corp., the parent company of brands like Tommy Hilfiger and Calvin Klein. Kohl's on the mid-scale department store side of things. And Nordstrom on the upper end of things, all up between 10 and 14 percent at this stage. And then one other place to watch, the home improvement side of things. We mentioned real estate as a sector before, but take a look at these. Home builders like Pulte Group up 6%. Lows on the home improvement side. Will people go out there and spend more to improve their homes? That's up about 3 or 4%. And then Mohawk Industries makes industrial and residential flooring products. So take a look at those financials, also the home builder stocks, and all the other places of the market that are keying in on this Kelly economic optimism narrative. We'll see if it lasts. Yeah, Dom, thank you. Dominic Chu. In fact, the S&P 500 is now just 15 percent beneath its all-time high, and we're up 30 percent from the lows a month ago, despite a pandemic that's cost 26 million jobs. Is the stock market being too optimistic? Mike Santoli joins me now with a closer look, Mike, at any disconnect you see here between the stock market and the real economy. Well, Kelly, I think at a glance, there's a pretty conspicuous disconnect, at least on the surface, right? You mentioned there's S&P down pretty mildly, only down 15%. We traded at the same level, you know, just several months ago. So it doesn't seem as if a lot of pain, given that we're talking about a GDP print more than 20% down for this quarter. But I think it really depends a lot on how the market got to this level. Uh, it has not been led by the areas that, by the way, Dom was mentioning are leading today, which are the economically cyclical areas that would be pricing in a very quick and strong rebound in the economy. As we all know, uh, it's really the big, dominant, mega-cap tech stocks. Healthcare has been a great performer. Very defensive-type leadership has gotten the market back up to these levels. For the most part, uh, as many have mentioned, top five stocks in the S&P represent more than 20% of the index right now. That kind of concentration says the Fed seemed to have cushioned the absolute extreme downside. Uh, there's money that flew, uh, flew into an oversold market. Uh, what's interesting now, though, is just how far that dynamic can take us. We went through these phases before. These big defensive uh, tech stocks hold the market together in 2016 and parts of last year until we get some more clarity or conviction about the macro outlook. Is that happening right now or is this just a little bit of a quick mean reversion trade with small caps working today uh, and all the rest? Obviously, we don't know that, but I don't think it's as simple as saying the stock market should be down more in recognition of the economic challenges because of the parts of the market that are up 
uh, on a relative basis have not been the ones that would be the great beneficiaries of a strong economy. You know what it makes me think, Mike, is that you could say maybe the economy overall holds up better than feared because there are pillars like tech or like healthcare which are contributing to the coronavirus recovery. Right, exactly. And these very large companies, even well before this crisis, were dominant. They were massive employers. They had access to capital and they were a buffer, uh, I guess, on the economy, certainly on the economy that's captured by the publicly traded universe of equities. True. Uh, obviously, it doesn't help small and medium uh, sized businesses very much directly. That's why the duration of the shutdown, of course, as everybody's been saying, matters so much because that tells you exactly how much damage along the way, how much wear and tear on uh, small company balance sheets and all the rest. Yeah, and maybe the Russell, at least a closer uh, proxy for that, even if an imperfect one. Yeah. Mike, thanks. Good to see you. Mike Santoli there. Oh. And as we look ahead this week to big tech earnings, we have Alphabet reporting tomorrow, Facebook and Microsoft on Wednesday, and then Amazon and Apple on Thursday. With the way the tech has been outperforming lately, can it keep winning or are expectations too high? For more, I'm joined by Jamie Cox. He's managing partner at Harris Financial Group. And Simeon Hyman is global investment strategist at ProShares Advisors. Jamie, you have an interesting kind of of way to look at this. It, it marries uh, what we're talking about for tech valuation with what Mike was just saying. Um, in a way for you, tech is the new staples. You know, what, what does that tell you about how long uh, its market leadership can persist? Well, you know, the open economy is really doing well right now. And, and technology is one of the places that is open and facilitates even what we're doing right now. I mean, we're talking about a Microsoft product right now. We're using an Apple product as an IFB. The technology companies are enabling us to work from anywhere, and, and, that's, and they're maintaining their dominant position because they're open and still earning revenue. So they're a more defensive sector than some of these other places that are traditional uh, defensive sectors like energy sure. or something that's more directly impacted by the economy. So I believe that tech is, you know, a lot of people say it's tired. I believe tech actually, actually has a lot more legs simply because, you know, you have the ability for continued earnings strength all the way through this problem. The only thing, though, I sit here and I hear a lot of people who are bullish on tech, Jamie, and I look at the size of the sector in the S&P 500 and it's at historic highs. You know, at one point, energy was this large and now it's dwindled to almost nothing. So, you know, it's not so much that I don't take your fundamental case for tech. It's that is it all baked in and how much bigger can these companies get relative to the rest of the economy? Well, I mean, people, when they say tech, they hear Microsoft, they hear Google, they hear Facebook you know, the big names. If you go below the surface and look at Broadcom or something like that, I mean, even even chips are doing very well. So I think if you think about what's going to happen as the economy starts to you know open back up, you're going to start to see production of these things, Microsoft producing its Surface tablets, for example. That type of activity is probably going to happen quicker because it's going to come from Asia. So I believe that there's more strength underneath the, the biggest big cat cap tech companies. That's why I think it's more, even dividend plays for Broadcom, for example, is a big deal. Sure. So I think that uh, it's more likely that the dividend plays that people may be searching for can be more stable and found in that area. So implied in that, I guess, is that with the big companies reporting this week, you would be looking slightly elsewhere. Like you said, Broadcom, maybe some of the chips, uh, something for us to, to kind of keep in mind as we as we move through the biggest of the big reporting. Simeon, let me turn to you because your emphasis is a little bit different here. It's more on the retail part of the economy. Uh, tell me about clicks. This is a long, short ETF, long online retail, short brick and mortar. Seems like a genius play right now, but what happens when the economy starts to reopen? Yeah, I, I, I hate, almost hate it when people say, what a genius play right now, to your point. <laughs> uh, we actually launched Clicks, which is 100 cents long online retailers and 50 cents brick and mortar, short brick and mortar retailers. We launched it about two and a half years ago. Now, of course, in a drawdown, long short's a great friend of yours. But in fact, the long and the short leg of Clicks have actually made money in this downturn because the online side, we're all stuck at home up 5%, and the short leg has lost a ton of money because everything's closed. But this trend is much longer than that. You know, and it's we're earlier in the game than I think people understood. We were only somewhere around 12 to 15% of retail being online going into this shutdown. And that means there's long legs to the continued pain on the brick and mortar side and more upside for the online retailers. It may be accelerated for sure. You know, as an example, take a, a category like groceries. That was probably the lowest penetration of any piece of retail online. And now almost everyone's getting groceries delivered and those habits may persist for a while. So I think absolutely there was a catalyst here. 
in the shutdown period, but it was a trend that was long, that was going on long before and will continue long after. So you promise uh, someone who buys this ETF will never lose any money? <laughs> Can't promise anything in this business, that's, that's for sure. But I will tell you that the way we structured the ETF is important. So that long leg, the online piece, is market cap weighted. Okay. So yes, Amazon was a big contributor to the upside of late. By the way, so was Chewy, so was Wayfair. But on the short leg, on the brick and mortar side, it's actually an equally weighted index. And that's really important. We did that originally because, hey, somebody's going to pull a quote unquote omni-channel rabbit out of the hat and do okay. But if you're equally weighted, there's so much pain across the other names of the constituents, particularly in this pandemic period. The fact that a couple of staples did okay didn't stop the the short leg from being down 27 percent and contributing substantially to the positive return. So structuring these ideas, even when the idea is right, the structure is really important as well. You've made your case, sir, uh, and, and made it pretty well. Uh, Simeon Hyman, thank you for joining me. And Jamie Cox as well, with some thoughts to keep in mind as we transverse uh, this tech earnings period. Thank you both. Good to see you today. Thank you. Now to $43 billion in five-year notes that went up for auction just moments ago. Rick Santelli is here with the results. Rick, how's demand these days? Another A-minus, two A-minuses. It really is quite amazing. You know, once the Fed's in the game, everybody wants to do the same thing the Fed's doing. Basically, all global investors. You know, treasuries right now are like cream puffs. Nobody can have enough of them, it seems. $43 billion five-year notes. The auction, a Dutch auction yield, 0394 the lowest to the Dutch auction ever, by the way. And 2.74 bid to cover, the best since August of 2014. Above average indirects, really solid directs, also well above average. Uh, A-minus dealers take a much smaller quantity than we anticipated. All things being considered, uh, it's... Uh, steepening the yield curve. The twos and the fives stop through is the vernacular. What that means is the lower yield than the when issued market is where it priced. And this is, of course, five year, the lowest auction yield ever. Kelly, back to you. Yeah, that's your headline. Uh, lowest yield we've ever had uh, for a five year note happening this afternoon. Rick, thanks so much. Rick Santelli and pretty strong demand for it, too. Now let's get to the race to find a treatment for coronavirus. Regeneron and Sanofi shutting down part of a drug study after a trial showed benefits for only the sickest patients. Regeneron shares down 2.5%. Sanofi still in the green today. Meg Terrell is here with the details. Meg. Hey, Kelly. Well, this is some of the first real controlled clinical trial data from a large trial we've gotten in COVID-19. Regeneron and Sanofi tested their already approved rheumatoid arthritis drug to see if it could help some of the sickest patients hospitalized with the disease. That was based on a small study out of China suggesting that these kind of inflammatory pathways may be contributing to the severe lung inflammation uh, that you see in those hospitalized patients. Now, what they saw in this mid-stage look at the study was that the drug could be helping for the most critical patients those on ventilators or high oxygen support, but it showed no benefit for patients characterized as severe, still very sick, but not requiring that level of support. Based on that, the companies are discontinuing the trial in the severe group and only continuing the phase three in the most critical patients with those results expected by June. Now, separately, the company Regeneron is also working on a new drug uh, for COVID-19. We talked with Georgian Kopoulos, the company's chief scientific officer this morning. He was a lot more confident about those prospects, still saying they have a goal to begin human clinical trials by June. He pointed out, of course, that they had successfully done this for Ebola in a record-breaking time of about nine months to get to human clinical trials. And here, their goal is to break that record with five months to get to human clinical trials, guys. Uh, So we'll have to hope that uh, that ends up working out. We'll see those human clinical trials start probably in June, Kelly. All right, Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell with the very latest there on that treatment program. Coming up, after the disease comes the debt. The U.S. is heading for a nearly $4 trillion deficit this year. We'll look at some hurdles and some ideas for trying to get back on track. Plus, conditions worsened precipitously. That's what the Diamond Offshore CEO said as it becomes the latest energy company to file for bankruptcy. We'll look at who could be next and which sectors are most at risk when the exchange continues. Stay with us. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. 
Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. The U.S. is heading toward a nearly $4 trillion deficit this fiscal year, and that's before factoring in any potential stimulus from a phase four deal. This according to new analysis from the Congressional Budget Office. Elon Moy is here with the very latest. Elon. Well, Kelly, the CBO's economic forecast is pretty grim. A 40 percent decline in GDP during this quarter, a 14 percent unemployment rate, and that's all leading to an equally dire fiscal outlook. The CBO now projecting the deficit will hit $3.7 trillion this fiscal year. That includes the cost of the CARES Act as well as the impact of the economic shutdown on federal revenues. Together, that's pushing the national debt up to the highest level since World War II. The CBO estimates that debt will be 101 percent of GDP this fiscal year. By fiscal 21, it'll be 108 percent. So, Kelly, these numbers are dividing Republicans over what to do next. Some senators, like Rob Portman and Josh Hawley, are pushing for a bigger aid package. But GOP leadership says those numbers are a sign that they need to slow down instead. Back over to you. Yeah, that, and Elon, what's interesting to me is the way that's going to already factor into do they extend uh, the PPP program again if, if funding runs dry on that front? You know, what should we expect for state and local governments? You know, that phase four stimulus package that may or may not be coming. Absolutely. You already saw President Trump tweet today skepticism over providing more money to states. He says sort of up to them to manage their fiscal situation. We also heard Senator uh, Mitch McConnell say last week that maybe some states should consider bankruptcy as a potential option. Uh, so clearly that is a fight that's going to go on as they negotiate the contours over what phase four is going to look like. Yeah, for sure. Elon, thanks. Uh, Elon Moy with the latest figures there. We appreciate it. Coming up, the federal government has been slow to supply Nevada with the tools it needs for testing. So the state took matters into its own hands, and it's paying off. Could it be a model for others? We'll explore that. Plus, public companies took far more small business loans than first thought. But amid pressure, $98 million of it has already been returned. We have the names and the numbers ahead. And remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in a couple minutes. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Welcome back now to the very latest in the coronavirus pandemic. Over to Sue Herrera for the headlines this hour. Sue? Thank you very much, Kelly, and good afternoon, everyone. A major milestone today as confirmed coronavirus cases worldwide have surpassed 3 million. That's according to the Johns Hopkins count. Almost 1 million of those cases are in the United States. Total global deaths have reached more than 208,000. Here at home, New Jersey's Governor Phil Murphy unveiled a six-point plan today to reopen that state after the coronavirus pandemic. But he added that New Jersey's stay-at-home order will remain in place until further notice. The first few steps focus on reducing cases and hospitalizations and expanding testing and contact tracing. I want, by the way, nothing more than to see every Main Street up and down the state filled with shoppers and diners once again. I want our construction sites roaring with activities once again. I want to see the shore humming throughout the summer. We will move as quickly as we can, but as safely as we must. 
As I was, as always, rather, you can get more on our coronavirus coverage by going to CNBC.com. Kelly, back okay. to you. Sue, thanks very much. Sue Herrera with the latest there. Well, a number of states are taking the first steps to reopen their economies, lifting some restrictions today as well as over the weekend. States where personal care businesses like nail salons and retail stores have reopened with social distancing measures in place include Montana, Colorado, Oklahoma, Georgia and Alaska. Tennessee, Georgia, and Alaska are also allowing restaurants to reopen today with particular rules in place. Theaters in Georgia are also reopening, while Colorado is opening up elective medical procedures, some personal training facilities, and dog grooming salons. And small manufacturers and warehouses in Minnesota were also given the go-ahead. There's one state that is staying closed, however, and that's Nevada. Contessa Brewer joins me now with a look at that state's unique roadmap for reopening its economy. Contessa? Kelly, the governor says Nevada is at phase zero of a phased reopening. He's closed schools through the end of the semester. And this weekend, protesters pushed back, frustrated with the broad closures of non-essential businesses. But the governor insists that to reopen, this path forward requires 14 days of declines in coronavirus cases, that hospitals have to maintain their capacity and vulnerable populations must be protected. He also insists social distancing must continue. So the challenge here is how do you reignite an economy that depends on crowds, on casino floors, day clubs and nightclubs, restaurants, shows, and especially the all-important conference and convention business? I spoke with former MGM CEO Jim Murren, who's now heading up the state's coronavirus task force. Initially, many of the high concentration of people in nightclubs and day clubs, they will not open. Um, and as immunity tests become more available, and it's certainly when the vaccine becomes available, then some of these relaxed, some of these regulations will be relaxed. And he says testing capacity is an economic necessity, not just a health necessity. The state's lab capacity has gone from 100 tests per day to now 2,000. The goal is 10,000 in a month and double that in a couple months. But Kelly, if you look at things like the Raiders are supposed to open that new stadium in a new season this fall, can that happen unless they're very innovative with the way that they put into place health safety? No, it's a great question. I mean, you know, this is a... It's not just sports. It's, it's the whole economy, and that's emblematic, especially in a place like Las Vegas and Nevada. Contessa, thanks so much. Contessa Brewer with a look sure. at what's happening there. Those governments around the world are spending trillions of dollars to keep their households and businesses afloat while they battle coronavirus. When it's all over, they'll be sitting on piles of debt not seen since the end of the Second World War. It's the cover story of this week's Economist saying after the disease, the debt. Joining me now with more is Henry Kerr, uh, who sounds like he'd be the economics editor at The Economist. And in fact, he is. Uh, Henry, thanks so much for being here. And I put this in perspective for us because this to me is kind of the trickiest part of fighting coronavirus. It's, you know, the debt piles up. And what do you do to service it going forward? Well, the first thing to say is that there's not really any disagreement among economists that massive fiscal stimulus right now is what's needed, massive emergency spending. That's pretty much almost a textbook example of uh, when fiscal stimulus is needed, the, the, the pandemic, I mean. Um, the question, I think, is what happens 10 or 15 years out when debt is 30 percent of GDP higher and then rich countries around the world start running up against gruesome long term fiscal forecasts owing to aging? And that's going to be a, a lot harder unless interest rates stay very low. Now, I saw you were discussing uh, not long ago how uh, uh, America just issued five year debt at its lowest ever yes. uh, level. So for some people, it's quite strange uh, to talk about the risks around interest rates. Uh, but I think when you're talking about debt that after World War II uh, took a very long time to pay off, it's worth thinking about those issues. But I wonder, Henry, if the takeaway isn't to say, yes, it's going to take a very long time to pay off and we've done it once and, and we'll do it again. And the real risk of this debt is obviously if we get inflation. And there probably will be some inflationary pressure in the economy from certain supply chain things and certain parts of the labor market. But overall, this is probably a deflationary event. And if anything, that government spending steps up to offset the loss of business spending and maybe kind of keep the economy uh, growing. But that's the, what, what the key comes down to, right, is whether we have any real inflation or not. Yes, that's, that's absolutely the question. And I agree with you that in the near term, it's, it's certain that this is deflationary shock. It's amazing that we've had the degree of uh, hit to supply that we've had, whole swathes of the economy going down, uh, and yet inflation expectations in markets have fallen. 
but again, uh, the question is, how able are we to forecast what inflation could be in the medium term? And that's the timeline at which you have to look at these things. Uh, you have to look at what, where interest rates are going to be over, over a long horizon. At the moment, we're sort of betting collectively on the idea that we'll stay in this low interest rate, low inflation world for a long time, in which case, hopefully, with a bit of growth, we can grow our way out of debt. But I think it's fair to say that's not a lock. There are risks around those interest rate forecasts. I mean, Yes, rates are very low, but if you looked uh, in past decades at uh, how well the long rates in the bond market predicted recent downward trend in rates, I think you'd say they'd, miss they'd missed it. So I, I, I think right. we're in an econ economic situation at the moment where you, you, we don't know what things are going to look like by Christmas. So to say you can say with confidence that this low rate wor world is going to be around for the time kind of time scale over which countries have to have to shrink debts that are this large. I think it's very bold, but but bold you, forecast to say that we know that for sure. Henry, I used to take pity on Japan on, in their economic experience, and now I'm relieved for their example, because if it weren't for Japan, we probably would think there was no way we could have this kind of debt and have an economy growing, have GDP per capita growing, you know, not have interest rates explode. But that example is sitting right in front of us with some similar characteristics. I think it's important to say whether it's possible uh, that the situation remedy itself, because if not, I go to the end of your piece where where you and it's, it's emblematic. I mean, there are others who are going to be more worried about this and say there's there's kind of uh, important steps that that would be taken to raise revenue taxes on land inheritance, carbon emissions and consumption of VAT tax in America, trimming spending on the elderly. I mean, all of these policy prescriptions are actually really significant moves that there's a lot of resistance against. And if we don't need to do them, why do them? So you're absolutely right with Japan. And the evidence from Japan is that much higher public debt uh, is sustainable in a low rate, in low inflation world. That said, that low rate, low inflation world means that you also do not grow your way out of debt. So Japan hasn't had anything approaching a crisis, quite the opposite. Uh, but it hasn't grown its way out of debt either. So the question is, once you break out of a deflationary event such as this, uh, how vulnerable are you then to some sort of unexpected rise in interest rates? How vulnerable are you to further fiscal pressures, another pandemic, and so on? And I don't need to tell you that the, the long-run fiscal pressures on the rich world are, are quite acute. Uh, so it's not the case that I think any economist or, or, or the Economist magazine would argue right now uh, that the priority is, is balancing the books. Absolutely not. But I think it's worth asking uh, further down the line, when these pressures from an ageing society come to bear and debt-to-GDP ratios are higher, at some point, will governments have to choose between higher inflation, mm -hmm. which is ha basically how it was done after World War II, and higher taxes? Um, and, 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 and that could be a choice that's coming. Admittedly, it's off the path of bond market forecasts right now, uh, but I think it's far from impossible. Sure. No, and they're not perfect forecasters either. And I suspect we're going to have that discussion a lot sooner even uh, than you suggest here in this country. Uh, Henry, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Henry Kerr is with The Economist. Uh, and again, his uh, lead story this week is after the disease, the debt. I want to give you an update from the White House, where they now say the president will hold a coronavirus news conference this evening uh, to discuss additional testing guidance. You can uh, set, I was, I was set your clocks, set your DVRs, whatever we do these days to catch that. Coming up, public colleges are losing millions in state funding across the country as state budgets take a huge hit. We're going to look at the ripple effect, including closures, that this could have for years to come on academia. Plus, the bankruptcies in the energy patch are growing, with Diamond Offshore the latest victim of crashing crude prices. Who could be next to barrel towards bankruptcy? We will explore that. And we know it's been rough for retail, and Adidas was no exception, down 32% in three months' time. The company reporting earnings today, and it was not a pretty quarter. We saw a dramatic, you know, basically falling off a cliff early, mid-March, that led to that 70 to 80% of our business was closed down. Probably the biggest change any of us have ever seen in running a business. Welcome back to The Exchange. About half past the hour, let's head to Dom Chu for a check on the markets and some of today's big movers. Dom? All right, so we got the major indices solidly in positive territory. As you can see here, the Dow up 250 points. It was up 322 at the highs. Take a look at the sector moves, financials, real estate and industrials leading the way. And you can see here communication services, technology 
and then consumer staples, the real laggards there. Now, take a look overall at some of the stocks on the move so far today. A few key ones to watch. Tesla stock higher in part by news. The electric car maker has has dozens of dozens of employees to return to work at its car plant in Fremont, California, while still complying with local health orders at the plant. Also, shares of Twitter higher help along by an upgrade of Mizuho to neutral from underperform, citing, among other things, that the COVID-19 impact is already priced in the stock. And then Boeing stock is in focus as well as it holds its annual stockholder meeting. CEO David Calhoun says air travel demand will take two to three years to recover to last year's levels. And earlier this past weekend, Boeing terminated a deal to take a controlling interest in Brazilian jet maker Embraer, Kelly. So those stocks on the move. Back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you. Now, the second round of the government's Paycheck Protection Program kicks off today, offering small businesses another $310 billion in loans. But the online portal has had some technical difficulties already this morning and crashed several times. Meanwhile, more than 220 public companies applied for more than $870 million in the first round of PPP loans. That sparked outrage from small businesses and the public alike. Shake Shack was one of the first big names to return its money, and since then, other companies like Ruth's Hospitality Group and Potbelly have also given back theirs. But not everyone is following suit. In his latest piece, CNBC.com reporter Hugh Sun is tracking it all and joins me now to discuss... Um, the sum, I thought this was interesting how you got the data. There's a tracking firm using AI that was able to just scan public filings to see who's actually gotten these loans, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a huge service to the American people because never before is there a single place where you can go and it's, there's complete transparency. It shows the actual underlying filings. Uh, and so basically they created a, an AI bot to trawl the securities filings filed to the SEC and to look for the words PPP. And it basically came together with the total. And as you see, it's about 870 million from 222 companies. Right now. So I guess my question now is there some as we found out about who got the money, you know, I remember when Shake Shack first came on CNBC and he said, yes, we're applying. We want to do everything we can to raise capital. Then they saw the outrage about Ruth's Chris and and realized we better return this. We have other uh, methods of, of raising it. Yeah. I, I get my guess is there's a lot of companies in these filings whose names have not yet been publicly disclosed. And the question is going to be, what do they do about that information being made public? Yeah. So I think what we have to do is separate the, the people in, who actually have true need. And, you know, there are a ton of microcaps here who claim that they don't really have access to the capital markets at this point in time, who claim that this is really essential for them to hold on to their their employees. And then there are companies, if you look at the filings, you can actually see that there are companies that actually have tons of cash on hand or significant amounts of cash on hand. And believe me, you, journalists like myself and others, and I want the whole world to be able to have access to this information, we should be pouring through those filings to see exactly who and who should not have received it. Because as you can imagine, this is sort of a chaotic rollout. We're in round two. And I think it's an iterative process where the first round was basically, you know, they didn't want to slow it down. So they basically had uh, requirements there are quite vague. In this second round, you know, Treasury was very, very clear. They said last Thursday, if you're a public company with wherewithal, significant market cap, you should not be tapping this. Right. And by the way, you have two weeks to give it back. No harm, no foul. Right. We'll see what happens when that. As but that you develops. know, they, they've issued that guidance after the fact. When this thing was first up and running, the idea was. If your company needs this liquidity to get through coronavirus, then you can take the money. And if you don't keep your payroll or what have you, then you have to pay it back as a loan. And if you do, it's a grant. Now, nobody got out there and said, oh, but make sure if you're a publicly traded company, you don't take it. I mean, a lot of this guidance has come out in hindsight. And frankly, only after Congress ran out of money, Hugh, if this was an unlimited program, there would have been the availability of a little bit for everybody to get some. Ultimately, you would hope. You're absolutely right, Kelly. And a couple of things. Well, first of all, if there were finite money, infinite money wouldn't matter. However, we do know that there's 350 plus 310 billion, and it went in a matter of days, right? So if there's finite money, we need to basically prioritize the people who would die without this money. And so, and these are the really small companies without access to the capital markets, without access to investment bankers who can't take out debt or new equity like Shake Shack did. And, you know, as a result, I think that basically it's okay. It's not a sin if you took this money, okay? It's a sin if you took this money and then after Thursday are keeping it. And I think that's the real message to the CEOs and the treasurers and the the CFOs of American companies who have to basically think, you know, look at their look at their uh, their balance sheets and see right. can we keep and we not is but, the pressure going to be worth it? Yeah. You know, ultimately, I don't think that there's going to be a lot of teeth behind the Treasury saying, you know, d- you know, give that give the money back within two weeks. I think this is ultimately sort of a public sort of process in which 
you know, companies should be shamed if they took this money and if they have access to other capital, because effectively you're squeezing the mom and pop businesses who have no other access. Yeah. So a couple of things. I mean, again, I think that let's go piece by piece here. We found out this morning uh, that the Los Angeles Lakers were among those who apparently uh, got money under this program. And this I thought was interesting in their statement. They said, once we found out the funds from the program had been depleted, we repaid the loan so financial support would be directed to those most in need. And that's the same thing that Shake Shack and others have said. They didn't know when they first took out the money that the funds would be depleted. They might be taking it from someone else. And we think about some of the worst offenders here, you know, that our viewers have been upset about Junior's Cheesecake and companies that aren't public at all would have no disclosure that would ever let the public know if they got this money, you know, that... It, the the imperative that we're putting on these companies includes a lot of those who we'd never know if they took the money or not. Again, even with the Lakers, we didn't know until they put out a statement this morning yeah. morning saying they'd returned it. Yeah, and so the, the website we're talking about, Fact Squared, only trawls public uh, filings, so so we would not know about the Lakers. So Lakers are the number two most valuable franchise in the NBA. They're worth something like four point four billion, according to Forbes. They have the wherewithal. They actually have a credit facility within the NBA that they could tap. So look. Again, this is ultimately free government money. And in the first round, if you took it, that's not sort of like it's not to be expected. You you would be you, you might have been a little stupid if you hadn't taken it. But now that we know that the money is finite and actually it, there's no guarantee that there's going to go beyond a round two. I think it is imperative about all these companies. We're talking about, you know, the L.A. Lakers. You know, we're talking about AutoNation. Now, AutoNation is another one. They tapped it for 77 million. They have a market cap of over three billion. They gave back the money, you know, they applied for the money, and then they took it back without even filing anything. So, I mean, I think the pressure is going to be high for a lot of these companies. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think reporters and, and the public are going to keep the pressure up, Kelly. I know, and it's ironic because then when the Fed starts its Main Street lending program, a lot of these same companies might arguably qualify and then go get the money that way uh, in any case. Hugh, we appreciate it. Thanks for joining me. And you can read all the details in Hugh's story on CNBC.com. Coming up, as more state budgets are hit by the COVID crisis, funding for public universities is coming to a halt. We're going to look at the college cash crunch. And speaking of cash crunch, General Motors suspending its dividend and buybacks today as it tries to strengthen its balance sheet. How long can they last if the crisis continues? Stay with us. Welcome back. Many colleges and universities are struggling as states shift their resources from public education to the coronavirus crisis. One school feeling the pinch is Montclair State University in New Jersey. The state just cut about $12 million in funding to it for the rest of the school year. Montclair State says the financial impact is actually much higher than that, about $40 million in total when you factor in the money it's refunding to students, other lost revenue, and the cost of converting to online learning. Joining me now with more on the situation is Susan Cole. She is president of Montclair State. And Susan, it's great to have you here. Welcome. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. How much of this is is a short-term, strange chapter of your history, and how much is going to have long-lasting consequences? Well, I think we are all going to discover that. Uh, There's no question that it's going to take a while to dig out of this crisis. Uh, The most uh, important variables will be what happens with uh, state funding uh, over the next uh, fiscal year. And the other big variable is what happens with the disease uh, that is plaguing us. And the third big variable is uh, what students are going to do in light of all of that. Right. For example, uh, in some very tangible effects this will have, you'll have larger classes come fall, cutting back on, on some of the offerings. You've deferred some non-essential maintenance. There's a hiring freeze for all but essential positions. You've eliminated uh, some others. You know, we're going to speak uh, with Mitch Daniels of Purdue University next hour. He's already made the decision to go ahead and reopen that campus come fall uh, with, you know, safety measures. Would you be able to make a decision like that? Um, how, you know, what kind of, of uh, safety requirements would be necessary for you to feel comfortable with making that decision? And what happens if you can't reopen financially? Well, first of all, um, whether or not we reopen in the in the fall will not be entirely up to us. Uh, we will have to see what happens with the health crisis. But much more important than that, we will have to see how society responds to what is happening with the health crisis, what students and their families think about it. And also, we'll have to see what happens in terms of governmental regulations. 
because if the governor says close the campus, it's not my decision. Uh, if we can, I very much want this campus to be open come September, and we will do everything we can uh, within our power and control to make sure that that happens. Uh, and, and that's very important because one of the things that we've discovered is, wow, miraculously, we could turn the whole university around from face-to-face -to, -face to online instruction in a matter of two weeks. And weren't, weren't we all, all the colleges and universities, brilliant to do that? But the other thing that we found was students, particularly undergraduate students, don't like it. Yeah. They don't like it. They can do it, but they don't like it. It is not giving them what they really want in the university experience. I'm, I'm sure about that. Um, I want to go back to the financial aspect of this, like you said, because if, if the future is not online learning, then it has to be something like your traditional model, and that's where the, the budget becomes a, a, a challenge. So, you know, the state uh, is not giving you guys that $12 million. I think that's about a quarter of what they're usually giving you. Uh, you've, like you said, lost about $40 million all told out of a, about a $400 million op annual operating budget. So that's about a 10% hit. So not catastrophic, but it will certainly have an impact. And we talked about some of the measures you've outlined. Have you been able to save enough money to be able to basically kind of offset that 10% by, you know, not having the cafeterias open right now, not having to clean dorms and that and, and so forth? Um, or is it still is still going to leave you in a pretty big hole? Oh, no, it's, it's a pretty big operating hole. There's no question about it. Uh, and we are going to do everything we can to fill that hole without damaging the core of what the university has to do. So, yes, our instructional program will be far more efficient. It won't be as many courses as we've had before, but it will be the right courses. Classes will be a little bit larger. The workforce will be thinner. Uh, we will not be able to do a lot of the things that we have done before. And uh, some of those things are going to hurt. But, but um, we can uh, get ourselves in a place where we allow students to be able to successfully complete their degrees. That's the important thing. What happens if not all of your students come back in the fall? If they, if they themselves just feel like they would rather not? Well, that becomes another financial problem. Uh, enrollment is what uh, drives the university's budget right now. Uh, we get a very small proportion. Even though we're a public institution, we get a very small proportion of our operating budget from the state at this point. They have shifted the costs of even public higher education in New Jersey on, onto the backs of students and their families. So if students don't come, then we have another uh, piece of the financial puzzle to solve. And that means we have to get yet thinner. Yes. And it sounds like it's going to be a tough summer trying to figure all of this out. Uh, Susan, thanks for joining me and keep us posted. Okay. Nice to talk to you. Susan Cole is the president of Montclair State University. And as I mentioned, next hour, don't miss an interview with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. He'll talk about his plan to reopen the uh, universities for in-person classes this fall. Meantime, shares of GM are up about a percent right now. This after big news this morning, the automaker suspending its quarterly dividend and its stock buybacks to preserve cash amid this pandemic. They're also extending a three-year revolving credit agreement. Uh, for more, I'm joined by David Whiston. He's industrial strategist from Morningstar. David, you had warned this was more or less likely to happen. Uh, do you see some relief by investors that the company has uh, gone ahead and taken these moves? Well, it's obviously not good news, but it does remove an uncertainty and a key question that was constantly being asked, especially in light of Ford already suspending their dividend. What GM did back in, in late March was really interesting when they made their, their big uh, announcement about drawing $16 billion on their credit line. They did not mention the dividend at that time, and it was a very appropriate opportunity to say they were going to eliminate the dividend if they were, and then they didn't. So it raised the question of, well, maybe they're thinking they can hold on to this uh, depending on when they think they can restart plants, because that's what this is all about now, is when can you restart plants. Right. And it looks like, given uh, the late April um, dividend announcement, would be now, now would be the normal dividend announcement anyway, and it just looks like they're not comfortable keeping it. Yeah, so what happens now for this company? How much liquidity do they have? What more assistance might they need, either from the capital markets or the government? Yeah, uh, the good news is, as long as um, production can restart, probably, by my estimate, maybe 
in GM's case, probably late September, early October. Um, I don't think they need any additional funding, even if plants stay closed. That's obviously not ideal. You want to get the plants going immediately because they book revenue on wholesale, not uh, dealer selling vehicles. Um, but they're still hemorrhaging cash, probably well over $4 billion a month. So um, we just really need to get another liquidity update on May 6th when they uh, report numbers. Uh, any update on minimum cash to run the business would be helpful. Um, yeah. It, we just, you know, we can estimate these things, and that's that's where I get the the timing I just gave you. But um, some more primary source information, uh, given the current circumstances, right? It, as you said, it saves them about about two billion dollars a year uh, by halting the dividend. Uh, and I mean that it must be somewhat reassuring that now this this time frame can take them to September or October to restart production without uh, maybe needing any more new funding. When do you think the dividend could come back? Yeah, that's that's a tricky one. I mean, if, if demand were to come roaring back this year, you, you'd like to think, well, it could come back this year, but you still have to repay all this debt first that you've, you've borrowed, and you don't know how long you're going to be closed, and that would determine what you can repay in 2020. So I think realistically it would be probably late 2021 at the earliest, maybe even 2022. We and just don't know. It depends on the recovery of the the economy. Absolutely. That, that's the investor question. And for the stakeholders, you know, the employees, the you know, parts of the, the U.S. economy that depend on car production, are we talking about more layoffs? I mean, what do you think? Yeah, the, the hourly workers at the Detroit Three are obviously under uh, the protection of the UAW. So uh, their jobs, uh, I, I think, are, are quite safe for now um, and, and probably would, will be for uh, quite a while. Um, the supply chain, though, uh, is, a, is a very different uh, equation because it's not just the really big tier one suppliers like a, a Borg Warner or Adian or Lear. Um, there's lots of little, uh, often family-owned businesses all throughout the Midwest. They might do uh, some uh, a random part of the vehicle that consumers don't even think about. Sure. And when you restart production, these suppliers, they need to then go – uh, upstreaming and get their own raw materials, and they just may not have the capital. I mean, the, the big ones that I mentioned are probably going to be fine. It's those little ones, and if those little ones go down, then the, the big suppliers also have a problem. No, that's and a great point. Have, we, we have this issue in 09, yeah. It, it's, it's an important point that people don't think about, and um, yeah. we, we got through it in 08, 09, so I think we can do it again. I hope so. Uh, we'll leave it on that hopeful note. But again, like you said, a lot of jobs at stake, and not just from GM here, uh, which obviously cut its dividend today. David, thanks for joining me. David Whiston is the industrial strategist with Morningstar. By the way, $48 fair value estimate on GM shares. From cars to crude, West Texas Intermediate for June delivery plunging nearly 30% today to about $12 a barrel as storage continues to fill and Diamond Offshore becoming the latest oil firm to file for bankruptcy. For more, I'm joined by Spencer Jacob. He's editor of the Wall Street Journal's Heard on the Street. Spencer, it's great to see you. You've done a lot of really good work on what's happening across the oil patch. What does Diamond's bankruptcy filing tell you? It's not going to be the last one. Uh, the oil field services space in particular is going to feel the squeeze right now. Those are the companies that uh, have the equipment and lend the picks and shovels. And Diamond Offshore is an offshore company, but companies that frack the wells, that provide the sand, that provide the horsepower for uh, hydraulic fracking, they're all in a, a world of pain right now. And you know, as much as, as oil producers are feeling the pain, they are seeing a, just a huge plunge in activity in North America in particular. And a lot of the companies that were already close to the edge, Diamond Offshore was already a kind of a tricky credit, just went over. It, it won't be the last for sure. How big could it get, Spencer? You know, we've spoken with an analyst uh, in the past uh, who says he, he wouldn't even rule out a, a merger between Chevron and ConocoPhillips. I mean, these are, these are kind of the biggest of the big names. Uh, others have said they actually think companies like Exxon could be hurt more than the smaller ones because the scale of their losses is so much larger because they're just simply so big. So, you know, should we bet on the energy industry looking more or less like it does getting through this but just losing the smaller players? Or could it be fundamentally reshaped? I think, I mean, Exxon is a, a very strong credit. Chevron is a very strong credit. You have some weaker credits uh, among the smaller companies. I think what you're going to see uh, not as a sort of a desperation move, but what you're going to see is the Exxons and Chevrons of the world taking advantage of this and uh, buying companies and snapping up assets that they normally wouldn't have been allowed to snap up. And a crisis is great camouflage to come in and, uh, and do things like that. It's not to say that they're not going to be hurting a lot. All of their assets from refining to chemicals to oil production not just in the U.S., but all around the world, 
is hurting in this situation. Um, their production is going to decline because there simply is no place to, to put the oil in a lot of parts of the world. But they're going to come through on the other end of this, not stronger, but relatively speaking, stronger because a lot of smaller players just aren't going to, you know, to be able to keep. No, that, I love how you put that. that the crisis is great camouflage for the kind of M&A that ordinarily wouldn't be allowed. Before you go, you know, you've, you've talked about the fund that ate the oil market, so to speak, the problems with USO. What's your takeaway there? So, I mean, you, you can't stop people from doing dumb things. I mean, owning USO, uh, apologies to anyone who owned it for any period of time. I mean, there have been swaths of time when you could have made money with it, but it's not a very well-designed product. It is something that allows mom and pop or funds that can't own futures to play in the oil market. But USO now realizes uh, how close it came to the edge, and it's changed its holdings. It's changed its holdings a couple of times. Um, it owned as much as 30% of the June WTI contract, which is a huge position. And it's now moved its positions farther out the curve because as you get closer and closer to expiration of the futures contract, the danger that you get stuck actually having to uh, take, take that this, delivery, right? Right. Yeah, is accelerates. And so that's, that's what happened to them. They didn't own this May contract, by the way, that went to negative $40 last week, but they did own a lot of the June contract that also fell a lot. And so Everyone knows that they're a seller in the market, yeah. and uh, that is adding to the pressure. And they're not the only ones, by the way. You have a lot of, for example, a lot of Chinese wealth management products that also blew up, yeah. that also UTI contracts. So they're not the only kind of um, you know game in town. But right. a- as you get to very, very close to the tank tops in places like Cushing, Oklahoma, yeah. where the contract settles, you, you're going to have stuff like that happen. Spencer, it's, it's great stuff, and I'm so glad uh, to see you again. Spencer Jacob is a Hurt on the Street editor for The Wall Street Journal. Our breaking news coverage rolls on with Power Lunch after the break. The president of Purdue University joins us. He wants his giant university filled with students in the fall and says Corona poses close to zero lethal threat to young people. It's a controversial take, and he'll be here to defend it. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.